We are the existentialists. Four existential psychotherapists invite you to join us in a dialogue about what it means to live an existentially tuned life. Your hosts are Xavier Williams, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Janelle Dresner, therapist in Edmonton, Canada. Chelsea Stenner, therapist in South Surrey, Canada. And Mihaela Lounano, therapist in Vancouver, Canada. Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of our Existentialist podcast. And today we're going to be talking about a concept called inner consent, which I think is, as far as I'm aware, unique to existential psychology, psychotherapy, certainly a big feature of existential analysis and really something that I personally think is central, probably the core idea really of what it is to be an existential therapist. And we will explore about what it is and really it's about when we can say yes or when we choose to say no, can we fully consent and looking at it from a, a very much a felt inner sense. And we'll take you through it kind of uh, in a bit more detail and, and then offer some examples, both personal and clinical. And hopefully everybody is going to be able to, at the end of it, maybe ask themselves one or two questions and really say, do I say yes to this or do I say no to this? Yeah, and maybe we can start by um, uh, offering more of a description of how do we understand inner consent? What is inner consent? Probably... Most people understand consent, right? As, uh, especially as uh, saying yes to something. But what about the inner part? And is consent always about saying yes to something? So I'm thinking maybe starting with uh, how do you understand inner consent, especially in existential analysis? Absolutely. I remember we're learning about it and having that that switch in my mind from just, yeah, as you say, Mahila, normal consent. Yeah, I say yes to something, but basically answering the question, do I really, and, and can I really feel it within me? Can I say, I think we've, we use the phrase sometimes, a full yes. Can I really put myself into this? When, whether that's saying yes and or no. And in fact, regular listeners will notice that I've used an example a few times of going to a party when you don't want to. And in other words, not having inner consent to go. And then the repercussions of that, how you feel afterwards. But it is very much a, a felt sense, I think, is the best way to describe it. Yeah, that, I think that's essential. And um, it, it's a yes, a felt yes. And um, since we are in the same room, I saw you like pointing towards your core, like to the gut feeling, where we feel our gut feeling. So it's the inner part is tuning into ourselves, a felt sense of how it feels to say yes to something or to say no to something. And consent is uh, when we say yes to something, we also say no to something else. So I guess the yes and the no are related in consent. And I mean, Saif, I know that you said something before we started recording about, and maybe you want to elaborate the, about the uh, saying yes to saying no, which is a bit uh, a paradox, but I maybe I'll let you elaborate since you brought up that. Yeah, what I'd been thinking about in anticipation of the episode was, how could I communicate? How? What are the examples of which in which I I have actually granted my consent, my inner consent to a given situation? And it most often comes up actually in saying no, in 
can I consent to saying no? And as somebody who's a in the Enneagram, the nines, the peacemaker, or maybe let's call me more generally a people pleaser, I used to, and probably still do, have a tendency to just say yes, to go along with things without really asking myself if I really do. And so often there've been times where really what I've wanted to say is no, but not. And so inner consent would be really about, can I say yes to me saying no? Which is, a, as you said, a bit paradoxical, but that's really where I feel it the most. Am I allowed to say no? Can I allow myself to say no? And also in saying no, it's uh, for some of us at least the first step to also discovering our inner consent. Like uh, sometimes it's easier to say no for some of us, but without knowing exactly what we are saying yes to. So I think um, we can look at this both ways, right? Like if we have a tendency to say yes very quickly, also to ask ourselves, can I say yes to saying no? On the other hand, if we or our clients are saying no too quickly, at something and rejecting something. Also to invite ourselves or the clients to reflect, okay, when you say no to this, this is great. That's a first step. But what are you saying yes to? So the yes and the no are um, really forming a dynamic duo in consent. Mm -hmm. And I think to deepen that a little bit, just practically, to kind of ask yourself and reflect as well, to what things do I say yes when I feel no and what things are easy for me to say yes when I feel it's a no inside or what things am I more compelled to give my yes or my no to when I actually feel something different because that could be a difference too I know for me if somebody's with me and asking for help then I feel even if I lack capacity and internally it might be a no, not because I don't want to help, but I may not be able to or it would stretch me too thin. But in those types of situations, I'm more inclined to render my consent void and and give my yes when I don't really mean it. So then is that really giving a yes? I'm wondering if maybe we can break down when we talked about when you guys talked about earlier the felt sense like the felt sense of yes perhaps we could provide our listeners a bit more of a description of like what is that felt sense because there is a yes that is like zap said people pleasing or it's just purely a verbal agreement and then there is a, a deeper rooted yes that's really arising from us that to me seems like it would be very obvious to tell the difference but I actually think that is a capacity we have to develop or an attunement to ourselves to actually be able to tell, is this something that I am truly saying yes to? So I'm just curious about any of you want to share, like, what is your experience of that felt yes when you know you're giving your inner consent? No, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking along the same lines too when Mahila mentioned that felt sense around distinguishing, okay, what is that and how do I know when I actually have consent and when I don't? For me, when I think back on experiences of having that consent and giving my yes, it feels like a a gathering or a mustering of myself inside, not in a forceful way, but there's a, a vitality to it. There's something a little bit more energetic to it that there's a rising of some sort. 
that I can feel and sense. And it also feels like there's almost a little bit of relief in it as well at the same time. Does that mustering or that rising, like when you said that, it made me think about it created a movement in which you would want to go toward, or there was maybe attraction toward whatever you were saying. Yes. That that movement would then propel you toward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It feels like a mobilizing Mm. type of uh, experience or energy. And also, thank you, Chelsea. That's my also my felt experience. And then when we express it, I mean, I find myself when I express that, yes, after mastering my energy, like my voice, so to speak, it's more clear and the words are coming easily. So we can notice it also in how we communicate that, like in much more sure, like confident, not kind of overbearing confidence, but like really a sure, grounded way to to affirm it. It's like affirmation. And then after arriving at that decision that this is my position, this is what I say yes to, there is also a sense of lightness, a sense of like, yes, this feels right. This is good. Yeah, lightness is very much that that feeling that I, I know when I feel light, I've consented to it. I'm I'm good with that decision. And then I like the your words there, Chelsea, kind of them mastering a because that kind of leads into the the kind of the second part in my mind is when I can, when I do really give inner consent to something, then I can throw myself into it. I can really fully show up, for example. The, the example that sticks with me and that, that really kind of reinforced it for me, I remember once I was supposed to go to a, a, watch a soccer match with some friends and but that night there was some family dinner that my mother-in-law had arranged and somebody was going to come and cook and show us how to cook curry and everything. I really enjoy curry, but previous experience had taught me that having curry with my in-laws was a bland <laughs> affair in the literal sense, um, as in no spices, which to me is futile for curry. And I went along because I felt obliged. Well, initially... And I remember walking, getting onto the SkyTrain and, and not wanting to go. I really wanted to go watch a soccer match with my friends. And I really, and they were texting me and everything, having fun. And and about halfway down, I asked myself these questions, like, do I really want to go here? Why am I going? And why am I not doing what I wanted to do? And I came to a position where I, I was able to grant myself consent to go to this thing that I didn't really want to go to in the first place. And then was able to throw myself into it. So I went, I stood with this chef, like right at the stove and I did everything with her. And I, so I was really there. I didn't just kind of sit and wait to be fed. I really kind of go through myself mm-hmm. into it. And I was only able to do that because I had sat and asked myself, can I consent to this? Yeah. And, and I think sometimes that's a beautiful example. And in that example, it sounds to me that you are really fully there, like you consented. But there are also situations when we cannot consent fully. So also like managing our expectations sometimes, like that and realizing there are degrees of consent. So the important thing is not to go for absolutes, like I'm completely fully in. And if I don't get that the full feeling of mastering my strengths and clarity and lightness, that means that there is no consent and there is no point. I just go with the flow. But even asking myself to what, to how much of this action or activity can I give consent? How much consent can I give? That's still very important. So that's uh, especially for people who are more on the perfectionistic side and they like to set high standards. 
the, the key part will be to ask myself to go to that core, to my myself, to my gut feeling and ask myself is, do I want to say yes to that? Am I with myself in this? I think that is huge, both in Zab's example, which you said, Mahila, because I think Zab, what I heard is that you, you had this feeling that you didn't want to go. And I think that's an important distinction is when we talk about inner consent, we're not just talking about like, what do I want versus what do I not want? Or just because I, I don't have all the positive feelings toward this dinner, that means I don't consent. So case closed, I'm not going to do it. And so Mahalo, what you're saying is that we don't always give a full consent. There's not always this full body. Yes. And I want to. It can be yes, because it's rooted in a value that is important. Or there are values here that are layered. And some, you know, I need to weed through the ones that are taking precedent and the ones that I'm going to choose to lean into in this moment, even if that means that another value that I cherish, I don't get to realize in the situation because I'm saying yes to these values over here that may have been in conflict. So it's not always, the inner consent isn't always, I feel amazing in making this decision sometimes. But like you said, there is a no, and that no can be disappointing too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maybe this is a good time to kind of flesh out what that no feels like. Not, you know, saying yes to the no, but before that, when you sense a no before you give your answer. Yeah, I think for me, it definitely also felt like still in my, in my core, like there is a resistance, like a wall coming up, like it's a hardening of some sort instead of opening myself to the possibility of what, whatever it is, I find myself closing in and becoming hardened. So not open, not kind of not soften and opening up to the possibility, but actually there is a clear kind of defense, a clear wall coming up. But I, if it is a yes to the no, to that no, that I still feel what you described, Chelsea, that mastering of strengths in order to say no. So that remains and the clarity, if it is a yes to the no. If it's a, just an oppositional no, then I guess that's not inner consent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can tell when I'm not feeling consent similarly to you, that, that hardening or some kind of bracing as well as a feeling like I can feel it in my body of wanting to move away lean back to to pull away to find another direction and so I also can sense that too as well as tension more tension too like it feels like there's a a pressure yeah for me I sometimes I, I don't know that it's a no like I don't always I'm not cognitively aware that how much I maybe don't want something or don't like something, especially with activities that I'm engaging in that are more obligatory, or they may be started out to be in alignment with my values. And so there was a yes there, but over time through actually engaging with the activity I realized, oh, this doesn't line up. Either what I thought it was going to be, or it's just not really meeting what I was hoping for. And so what I find is my no will usually manifest physically first. I get anxiety. I feel emotionally resistant or just feel like a feeling of blocked or things are foggy or I just can't connect. Like I can't get into that sense of flow 
with what I'm doing, whether it's a work project or what have you. So I find it takes a while for me. Like it takes a good amount of time of sitting with something, especially if there's obligation backing what I'm doing for me to say, okay, is this something that I am not consenting to that I thought that I had, but I lost it along the way somewhere. Janelle, I really like that you you reminded us about how that kind of consent isn't, say, permanent, right? It might change throughout an, an event or an experience. And I remember starkly, kind of in the very, very early training, going to a lecture by um, Dr. Alfred Langler, who's uh, the kind of the, the president of the society and the one who basically created our version of existential analysis. And there was this talk and there were like, I don't know, let's say 200 people in the auditorium and yeah, he welcomed them and he said, I'm glad you all decided to come here today. And then his very next sentence was, but if at some point you find me a bit mm. boring, you don't want to be here, then leave. <laughs> Which to my mind stunned me, you know, this idea that you would be in the middle. And I think he was talking to people in the middle that he would say, if you really don't want to be here in the middle of my talk, leave, like don't stay. Which is was effectively kind of in a very simple way, him kind of encouraging inner consent is, do you want to be there? And just because you wanted to be there in the beginning doesn't mean you will halfway through. Mm-hmm. And Oh, thank you, Sav. I remember that too. I think the beauty of that is not only like to open the possibility for changing the consent and uh, inviting us to check maybe um, ongoingly if we still consent to what we consented initially. But I think also to me, it highlights the importance of inner consent, like the profound importance for our existence because it brings to the fore our essential freedom that as human beings, we are free Nobody is or nobody should force us to be in a certain place and do a certain activity or participate in something. And it's um, taking that freedom upon us, upon ourselves, and making decisions. So I guess that's what I find so um, over and over again so attractive about inner consent and dialoguing about this topic. It's how it's fundamentally related to who we are as human beings and to our existence, the fact that we are free and we can make decisions and we can say our yes, even to our no. I really liked what you said about taking upon ourselves our freedom. And I think that's true because I think, especially with like the routines and daily habits and obligations, our responsibilities, we can kind of forget that we're free. And forget to stop and pause and ask and be in dialogue with ourselves around to really go, huh, just because I eat oatmeal for breakfast every morning, (laughs) am I giving like my consent to this actually? Or am like, am I taking the time to really not use, but to take upon myself that freedom? Like you said. Yeah, and we can also ask for inner consent even in routines, like even in eating oatmeal, like to check with ourselves, do I still want to do this every morning? Maybe yes, maybe this is an important ritual, which is fine if you find yourself free in that. But also to ask for our inner consent in other kind of routine, perhaps menial, everyday tasks like taking the garbage out, doing the dishes, the things that perhaps not everyone enjoys. And uh, trying to do those with an inner consent mindset. Like, can I say yes to this? 
just to pick up again on something that Janelle said about how some things, particularly if they're kind of obligation related, that they take you time to sit with, to really develop your answer to your, do, you know, do I consent to this or not? And I think that it's wonderfully illustrative of, let's say, the span, the spectrum of inner consent in that inner consent can be some, about something really big, like really, really big, really meaningful, really personal, and as simple, and this is often where I try and get clients to start with it, is which direction I choose to go home, or what restaurant I go to, or what I eat for for my meal at a restaurant, right? What am I, it's not quite on the same level, but it's everything in life you can ask yourself this question to. Yeah. Yes, because our existence unfolds in every moment. And we are asked to take upon us the freedom and to actualize our existence in every moment, not only in the major life decisions, but in every moment, like we can encounter ourselves as free and we can ask ourselves, do I want to be here? Do I want to do this? But also like, Edgenel, you, you made a great point about, uh, I mean, the question that came to my mind is like, does it mean that we, we never do anything if we don't have inner consent and that uh, feeling of in our gut that is the lightness and the strength mastering and the clarity, like we just say, forget it. Today I don't feel like getting out of bed and go about my day and honor my commitments. So what to do about that? I think for me, there is a lot that is relieved in recognizing that there isn't inner consent or there's a lack of consent. And even making peace with that sometimes when I have to see things through or I need to get I need to get chores done. Although I will push those off for as long as possible sometimes. But when life things happen or I made a commitment and it is honoring to that person to follow through, I do try and connect with, is there a value in this that I can consent to? So for example, my poor sister, she's listening, but if my sister asked me to babysit one night and it's after a long day of work and I agreed to it weeks ago and I'm really tired, I'm not going to back out on her last minute even though I don't have full consent or my body is like, I'm so exhausted. I don't have consent for this. What I do consent to is, is following through on my commitments. And I do it. And I like Zav, I think that's a great attitude of like, finding a way to throw yourself into it. And then it, of course, my nieces and nephew are fantastic. So it's always great. So sometimes if I can find a value, I'll look for it there. But sometimes it is just the <laughs> building a relationship with my discomfort. And being aware of opportunity to get to know myself, of my character and my decisions I make when there is a lack of consent. And I think that can be important. I know Frankel talks about different types of values, and one of those is attitudinal values. When we don't have a choice, when we really can't affect change in a situation, then we can at least change our attitude So if I can do that, that's how I try and approach the situation. Although I don't want to make that glamorous, it doesn't feel great. I mean, it's a hard thing to do. So it's certainly a capacity that I've been trying to cultivate. Yeah, thank you, Janelle. Very important, like two things really like moved me and stood out for me. Like what you talk about when you talk about the relationship with the discomfort and the unpleasant and developing the capacity to tolerate that and be with that and not basing the, I mean, founding our inner consent on only on what's pleasant and attractive in the moment, 
that actually mm-hmm. being able to tolerate that if we truly say yes to to another value that maybe even more that we can detect in a maybe larger picture or it's a different kind of a value like for you in that example with your sister and babysitting there are also some competing values there of course the value of taking care of yourself and resting or sleeping versus the value of honoring the commitment that you made to your sister and the pleasure the joy of spending time Totally. nieces and nephews, so there could be competing values. So the important part is inner consent. It's also to clarify to what are we saying yes? To what value are we saying yes? And to what values are we saying no? Because it's very rare that we say yes to all values involved in a situation. Sometimes there is a no, a temporary no, to a legitimate value, like in your case, the resting and taking care of yourself. And yet you you could detect the values the other important values, and I, I assume that helped you tolerate that discomfort. Certainly. And I like what you just mentioned about the temporary no. I think that's important too. If we're saying no to a value that wants to be realized, and in this case, for me wanting to rest, that is important for me to hold that. If I can't meet that need in this moment, it is still important. And for me to be able to say yes to it in another time, and I may have to intentionally carve out time to say yes to that, taking time to rest. But I think that that's important is sometimes it's not a all or nothing that if I say no to it, then I'm always going to. We get to rearrange our lives. We get to think critically that way about how we spend our time and how we can actually attribute time, chunks of our time to different values that are competing for attention. Yeah, that, thank you, Jonah, for clarifying that. I was also wondering, if given what we are all doing for a living, like, you know, being psychotherapist, I mean, I don't refer to our secret <laughs> work life. <laughs> Beyond that, but just simply what we declare that we are doing. <laughs> like, um, is inner consent uh, important for our clinical practice, for in psychotherapy and how exactly and maybe of course it will be even helpful to maybe provide some practical examples or suggestions how to cultivate inner consent as clinicians and also for clients and for our listeners who may be interested in some practical strategies but is it important in our practice in our clinical practice I would say certainly I mean I'd suggest for anybody in any profession a certain degree of inner consent is preferable I'd suggest. My previous professions, I didn't never really chose. They kind of happened. When you need a job, you take what's offered and then well, maybe you can do okay at it and be, get better at it. And so you keep going. And I think a lot of people actually fall into that bracket. So I certainly can say I never consented to any of my previous professions. Even kind of on a, a day-to-day, a client-to-client basis, I think it's important, right? Because there would be, this is a, a a secret that I think it's probably a bit of an open secret. Not every single client is a fantastic client. Not every single client's an easy client. Not every single client is somebody you would want to be friends with, right? Which, not getting into ethical questions here, but in order to really be present, to really care for your clients, to really want to, to help them, I think a inner consent has to be present, And I think for a lot of us, it probably is there, maybe not quite automatically, but largely. 
We don't have to think really hard about it. But sometimes, maybe on a particular day, maybe if we're struggling with a particular set of issues, uh, mm. even over a whole period of time, I'd be hard-pressed to do this without it, I think. And what I hear you saying is that inner consent provides this foundation for your work that when you're working with clients that you jive really well with, but then when you're also working with clients that are maybe more challenging for you, that inner consent provides that capacity to continue to turn toward your clients and to put yourself into the work that you do and to say yes to it. Yeah, you said it a whole lot better than I did. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Tried to help you. <laughs> and from um, also like thank you, Saf, that's really important to realize that for us as therapists and we also, it, it's so important to have consent to what we are doing. And indeed it is, uh, I mean, I like what Chelsea said in another episode about our profession is that we are asked to we wake up as human beings and we are continuing to be fully human or try our best to be fully human throughout our day in any encounter with clients and i think it will be incredibly difficult i mean it is because uh, open secrets right it's obviously it's not always like in my practice i'm not always in every single moment at my very best of course there are moments when i like any human being, even being a human being means that I am maybe perhaps more tired or there are challenges. But I I really appreciated what you said, Sav, that I, I go back to that place asking myself, do I want to do this? Do I say yes to it? Do I find my freedom in choosing this? And so far it's very reassuring that um, I say yes to this, but it will be incredibly difficult. I don't think it will be possible to be a good therapist without... Uh, having inner consent to this, to being human with other human beings. Yeah, I agree. At least I think there are certainly days that have been harder or that it's been harder for me to connect to the consent or I'm just not, I don't have, I'm not feeling it. However, then having encounters with clients really does reignite that, like feeling how meaningful the work is. It is certainly... I think neither of a big yes to this work. Um, so I am grateful that this job is so meaningful. But I also, I've heard from clients, I think that many therapists have had this experience of clients coming to them after not having a good experience with other therapists. And I think I get that sense sometimes when I listen to clients talk about what was unsatisfactory for them in their last relationship. And and I, I would imagine that there probably wasn't a full consent of the therapist. So they just couldn't say yes to seeing that client and to committing to understand where they're coming from, to understand what's going on. And like for me on, on my, my lesser fantastic therapy days, I certainly become more explanatory. I don't even know if that's a word. I explain more often or mm-hmm. I... Instead of instead of like dipping into that phenomenological attitude and the slowing down and the attentive looking and the attentive listening and the really understanding, I explain or interpret or analyze. And I don't, I don't think that leaves as much room for encounter. And so I can tell I've noticed, at least for me and my pattern is like, oh, on the days where I'm maybe struggling to feel that consent, whether it's because I'm tired or what have you, is that I notice a difference in my therapeutic presence. 
Janelle, I completely agree with you. I noticed the same thing for myself as well. And I think sometimes when I have noticed that, that just taking that little break in between sessions to Mm. kind of reestablish my sense of consent, because I think the work that we do, especially and particularly phenomenologically, it requires so much openness and so much attunement where in order to do that the consent is vital like if we even compare like the embodied experiences we were talking about earlier where Mahila said when she you know doesn't feel consent there's this hardening that happens or this wall that comes up and and I've felt that too and that that wall is detrimental to the openness and detrimental to the relationality and so I think just to concur with everything that we've said, I think consent is vital in our profession. And I'd actually be curious to explore, discuss, maybe not necessarily even in the therapeutic setting, but just generally what the dangers are of not living with consent. Yeah, like it's not living my life. Like living life based on other rules or obligations, duties without ever finding myself in my life. And I think it's extremely dangerous in therapy in particular because of the reasons that you mentioned and the vulnerability that exists there. But I think that's a great danger, like not not knowing myself, not finding myself, not being present in my life, with my life, and then with other human beings, including clients. Then we're we're at risk of disconnection, of feeling, experience, maybe being disconnected from ourselves and not being able to give that in consent. But then experiencing disconnection from others. And I, I say this. I was thinking about you know what I was saying about people pleasing earlier, and and how if if you're always saying yes or acquiescing is probably a better word, without really having your consent, then you don't ever get to show up. People don't really get to see you, mm-hmm. and then they don't get to interact with you and thus you don't really get to interact with them because you're not really there. And that has potential for disconnection and loneliness, I think, and quite profound loneliness. I suspect a lot of clients and presumably a lot of listeners will maybe be able to have a memory or sense of what I mean there, where you haven't, yeah, you just felt like you've missed. Really missing your life. Like missing yourself, missing your life and leading to feelings of loneliness and meaninglessness. Yeah, and I think fear, like this, if I were to look at the ways that I'm not giving consent to my life, that may bring an impetus to change. That may actually force me to make a decision or conscious decision of, am I going to live my life in alignment with my values or am I not? And do I like the fact that I'm not? Now I have to live with that understanding and that knowledge. And that can be really an uncomfortable position for people. I think ultimately fear of change. And, and we've talked about how scary it can be to live authentically, which of course, inner consent is such an important part of authenticity. So without that, it is difficult to live authentically without ever giving consent and I think too like even looking at phenomenon like anxiety or depression like you were saying Janelle that 
the anxiety that you can feel in your body is sometimes that no being expressed or that consent isn't there or maybe a depression like that loss of meaning feeling lost in general who am I I don't know what I like anymore what do I do even it can really have such devastating effects on a person's life Absolutely, absolutely, Chelsea. And given this damaging effect and the importance of inner consent, I wonder if we want to spend a few minutes like discussing how can we cultivate, how can we nurture inner consent for ourselves, but also in dialogue with the clients. Like we really use inner consent in therapy, perhaps with some clients who are <laughs> long-term clients and they know about inner consent, it's easy to ask them. So do you have inner consent for this? But what if someone comes like fresh, new, not knowing this way of talking? How may we encourage or like elicit that sense and make them reflect on that? So one simple way and kind of somewhat indirect way that I do that is several clients who are prone to talking in the third person. And so they'll say, so I make a little bit of a joke of it and say, who? Mm-hmm. And sometimes they click straight away and they say I, or sometimes they ask me, what are you talking about? And I say, but it's not me, it's you. Do you believe that? Is this what you think? Is this what you want? And and kind of getting them to use I a lot more. Mm-hmm. That's a great example, Sab. Yeah, like, and so immediate and so simple and yet so powerful. Like even assuming that I position that I am actually living my life and I am present in my existence. I'm not just <laughs> a new, another person. That's that's huge. Mm-hmm. And for myself, like also like I think you referred to that to Sav in an earlier episode, like about the small steps. I think we talked several times about like starting small but being persistent and then asking the clients like even in therapy, checking with them Do you want to do this now? Do you want to talk about this now? Do you would you like to receive some some of my impression or some feedback? Or if they talk about something about going to a party to go to that uh, example like did you really want to go or do you want to go and helping them to come to that uh, feeling of consent or not. Mm-hmm. And for me sometimes I, I gateway that I'll use to cultivating it with a client, especially if they're really unsure, is to reflect on the past. Like, can you tell me about a time where you were all in or you had to make a really difficult decision and you came to a decision? And then from there to unpack what that experience was like, kind of bringing that experience into the room or that memory into the room by asking, okay, so how do you know you were all in? Or how do you know that this was the decision to be made for you or that this is what you wanted? What did that feel like? What did it feel like in your body? What did it feel like emotionally? And then carrying it out, what did it feel like? Because through that, then they're able to start recognizing what that feeling is or how to know and how to get in touch with it so that they can start to recognize it when it comes up going forward. I think it's really important to anchor that experience in the body in a felt sense, as you said, Chelsea, and as we discussed at the beginning, because that's usually this is what we remember, like that procedural memory, that body memory. 
So um, it's important to have that resource there and to for our clients and ourselves to know how it feels like when we say a full yes. And then even if there are degrees of yes, it's still important to kind of assess them, to feel them by referencing that felt sense of a full yes. So very important. So definitely not staying at the intellectual level and at the cognitive level, but what do you feel it and trying to get to that gut feeling, that felt sense. Yeah, even funny you said not to stick at that intellectual level. I was thinking for people who are who tend to more be more cognitive, more thought rather than feeling, one of the ways that I do it is I have a conversation with my gut, if you like. I almost kind of imagine like there's this little version of me who sits kind of somewhere around my solar plexus and I ask him, am I consenting to this? And then the response obviously won't be verbal, but it will be, some degree of feeling exists. And so a continued dialogue with that helps. And, and certainly I'm dead serious when I say I, like I imagine this little guy, I mean, like that's how I have my dialogue. Well, that, that's very <laughs> intuitive, very vivid. Like now I, I would try to look for the little. So, <laughs> at that point about the importance of inner dialogue, like turning towards ourselves and really having this dialogue that could be imaginary, but could be a real dialogue when you take turns. And also, general, what you said about values, like I wanted to also emphasize, mm-hmm. like uh, working with our clients to and ourselves to recognize the values involved in saying yes or no to a situation. And you described really well, Janelle, in your example is your sister and babysitting, right? Like that we are all caught in very complex situations. It's not so easy sometimes. Mm-hmm. So we need to dialogue a lot with the, a lot is the little guy or little girl that sits on the <laughs> on our solar plexus, that <laughs> inner dialogue. But it's uh, it's important to discern the values. Like what are the values? Are they competing? To what am I going to give priority? Am I okay to say yes to prioritizing something and to endure my discomfort? So that's another strategy to help clients and ourselves to give inner consent by detecting the values. To what am I saying yes? To what value? And of course, teaching them to tolerate the discomfort. Yes, definitely tolerate discomfort. I think tolerate discomfort so that we can build a container to hold it. That's the capacity to be able to hold these tensions is important to cultivate. But also sometimes that discomfort needs time to gestate before we're very clear on what the next right action is for us to take. I'm always an advocate for giving yourself time. It takes time Mm -hmm. to come to a place of inner consent, particularly with big decisions. So I think also, you know, I'm working with clients because for some of us, and depending on where in the world we're living, in some of our cultures, we're living in very fast-paced environments. And people expect you to make really big decisions in a short amount of time. And so we can actually give ourselves time to let things sit and to really chew on them and think about them and and weigh our values. Because even in my work with clients and also in my own work, I've had this idea that a certain value is more important to me than it actually is. And when I observe myself and I just watch myself and my actions or clients watch what they do in a day, they realize, oh, like I thought that one of my deepest values was being in nature, but I never go outside. I never take time to connect. So is that actually true? And then should that decision 
should that value be such a weighty part of my decision and where to live? So sometimes that is a process just to figure out if what we think to be true about ourselves and what we value may not actually really be the case. Janelle, I'm, I'm so glad that you reinforced that kind of taking of time. And I love that word gestation. And um, just to add a pop culture reference, although I realize it's not kind of contemporary anymore. <laughs> One of the most famous lines from the original Jurassic Park was when Jeff Goldman's character, Dr. Ian Malcolm, that's him. So he kind of condemns Richard Attenborough, who's kind of created this dinosaur park. And he said, you were so worried about whether you could, you didn't stop to ask whether you should. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have issues with the word should and clients who are listening might will know this, but it's about waiting and asking yourself. Mm-hmm. And also since inner consent is a decision that potentially can lead to an action, I like a lot what you said, Sav, like it's um, the fact that we can do something. It's mm-hmm. only one part of consenting and making a decision like it's also we have to ask ourselves can i but do i want to do i like to do it does it do justice to myself like is it in in agreement with myself but also should i for what greater purpose or um, how does this decision sit in in the larger context so absolutely these are prerequisite otherwise uh, it's a pseudo inner consent and on that note, like maybe just to to wrap it up, since we gave our uh, listeners some, you know, invitations, suggestions about how to cultivate inner consent, are there any risks in living with inner consent? Oh, certainly. You might upset people. <laughs> if you, yeah. Um, uh, and there, there are risks. And uh, I remember having this experience when I was 23 and I decided... This is way before I even knew what inner consent was, to not write a master's thesis mm. in a previous degree, knowing full well that I was going against familial ideals of education and actually being okay with that. But there's a risk there. There's a risk in, at best, maybe disappointment from your family. At worst, people might stop talking to you. They might not like, they may not be able to handle, I think is probably more accurate, when you actually say, you know what, actually, I don't agree with this. I don't want to do this. I'm not consenting to this anymore. Oh, absolutely. I can <laughs> echo that. And we talk about the dangers of inner consent in relationship with authenticity. Uh, also, another risk is that some people may think that, okay, if I'm living so authentically with inner consent, that makes that I'm assured that I'm, I won't make any mistakes. And then I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm always going to walk the right path. And there is risk to make mistakes with inner consent. Mm. Like even if I feel fully with myself and I have that feeling of lightness in that moment and I express it, I may still regret it. <laughs> I mean, the consequence is not the inner consent. Like the consequences of the actions based on that inner consent may be still not uh, the best we can hope for. So there is a risk of mistake. Absolutely. I'd say inner consent doesn't make you bulletproof. Mm-hmm. But what it does do, this is something I tell my clients, is that when you've made a decision within a consent, you are better able to handle the consequences, even if they are negative. I think that's really powerful what you just said, because for me, I was just thinking about one of the risks of inner consent, particularly if you haven't been living with it for a long time, is that your life may change drastically 
And that can come with a lot of grief, a lot of change relationally with yourself, with others, maybe with work, with really any facet of life. And so that is a risk that the change could be huge. Definitely. And yeah, I agree. I mean, there has been times sometimes of making a really difficult decision where I have a deep felt yes to the decision that I made, but there are tears and it's a real loss. What inner consent did and does for me in those decisions is it gives me peace and it also forms the ground for me to be able to grieve those losses and to metabolize that pain. And to me, it feels it's a beautiful process, but there's certainly, I think, a loss. And it's interesting because I think there's there's a loss not living with inner consent. It's just there's a numbness to it, or we set up a lot of defenses to convince ourselves that there is no loss. But we that estrangement from self, I think, Miley, you'd mentioned something about that. That's a price. That's a loss. Yeah, you just related it to what Sav said. Like it's a, the cost, the price of being estranged from ourselves and not finding ourselves in our own existence. It's far higher than the upset that we can encounter in others. And even the changes that can come as a result of beginning to live more and more with inner consent. On this note, I wonder, are there any final thoughts or comments? before we leave you with the existential question for the next episode? I think a final comment is that inner consent is a key component of not being a victim of one's life and actually standing in one's life and making decisions with oneself rather than life is just happening to me and I can't do anything about it. Inner consent, even when we can't actively change our circumstances, we can still choose what we are saying yes to, and that's powerful. I think that's a great place to end there, Janelle, if everybody else consents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I couldn't, couldn't help myself. That was great. Yes. <laughs> and so all we have left for you is, of course, our existential question that leads into our next episode. Today's existential question is, do you feel free when you take on responsibility? As ever, send us your answers at Existentialist Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and hello at existentialistpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at Existentialist Podcast and let us know your answer to today's existential question. To learn more about us, listen to and learn about other episodes, visit our website at existentialistpodcast.com.